back, my friend, and welcome to episode 8 of this Bible study series through the Gospel of Luke. I am going to apologize right from the beginning of this episode for how long I'm thinking this episode is probably going to be. I've got notes and notes of things I want to talk about today. We've got some good reading in store today. I'm super excited. Thanks for being in here. If you would like to read along, the reading plan is linked in the description. You can download it. It's free or you can listen as we read today through Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 30. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant. The devil said to him, I shall give to you all this power and their glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. All this will be yours if you worship me. Jesus said to him in reply, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then he led him to Jerusalem made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and with their hands they will support you lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him in reply, It also says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread throughout the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had grown up, and went, according to his custom, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. He said to them, Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke highly of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They also asked, Isn't this the son of Joseph? He said to them, Surely you will quote me this proverb, Physician, cure yourself, and say, Do here in your native place the things that we heard were done in Capernaum. And he said, Amen, I say to you, No prophet is accepted in his own native place. Indeed, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine spread over the entire land. It was to none of these that Elijah was sent, but only to a widow in Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. Again, there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When the people in the synagogue heard this, they were all filled with fury. They rose up 
drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town had been built to hurl him down headlong. But he passed through the midst of them and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's dive into this. I've got tons to say. So we begin with the temptation of Jesus. So yesterday we had the baptism of Jesus, uh, an incredible moment. And Jesus goes straight from the baptism to the desert. And it says, and this is a cool detail, it says that he was led by the Spirit into the desert, that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to this test, to this time of, of 40 days in the desert. So in some ways it was, it was necessary, ordained by God, ordained and moved by his Holy Spirit, maybe for two reasons. One, to prepare him for his ministry, and two, maybe to in order for Jesus to redeem something by being in the desert. And we will talk about that more. But he's in there for 40 days, it says, and he ate nothing. Now, imagine... Imagine, I don't know how long you've gone without eating food before. Um, I have done three days. Uh, usually, I think it was last year, twice I tried this. One on just like an odd weekend. It was an incredible experience. Um, I would do this with supervision because there were many times where I felt like I was going to pass out and die. Um, and no one was around. So I, I could have died. No one would have known. But super long time. Get super hungry. Imagine doing this for 40 days. Uh, there's some significance to the number 40. There's significance all over the Bible. Uh, maybe Exodus and the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness would be one of the, the clearest examples that we have. And maybe Jesus, in some way, in his 40 days in the desert, is redeeming the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness and redeeming their disobedience and their sin in their time in the wilderness, in their time of their exodus. But it also says that Jesus was hungry, which, uh, yeah, makes less sense. He didn't eat for 40 days. But it also shows to us that Jesus experienced our human suffering, experienced our weakness, experienced real, real hunger. And he wasn't just like totally divine and didn't need to eat. Jesus was human too. Um, but in that time, he faces temptations from the devil. And we get three main ones here. And there's significance to these three. So let's let's look at each of them. The first one, the devil tempts him to make uh, to turn the stone into bread. And all Jesus' responses here, all three of them, are from uh, Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8, which is like the heart of Moses' teaching, the heart of the Israelite scripture. So Jesus is going straight to the heart of the Old Testament scripture here. And he responds to this first one with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which reads, He therefore let you be afflicted with hunger and then fed you with manna, a food unknown to you and your ancestors. So you might know that it is not by bread alone that people live, but by all that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. This is the perfect response from Jesus. Because what he's quoting here is Moses saying essentially that God will feed us in our hunger with heavenly food, more than we could ever feed ourselves with earthly food. Jesus is spot on. Perfect response. Temptation two. The devil shows him glorious kingdoms of all the world for Jesus to possess. And this is a this is a very important and super consequential line that Satan says here. He says, I shall give to you all this power in their glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. 
Now, what it seems that, that, the, that the devil, that Satan is doing is making a claim at authority over the earth. Now, that's, that's tricky because we, we hear from, for example, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 27, verse 5. Jeremiah, uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, It is I who by my great power have made the earth, and I give it to whomever I wish. And clearly, that's, that's how it ought to be, that God, creator of the universe, creator of the earth, has authority over the earth. But Satan makes this claim, it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. I think there's two options of why, why this is said. One, maybe Satan's just playing with Jesus. Maybe he's just making some kind of like sarcastic uh, play or a jab at God by saying this. But I think more in more reality... This is maybe an authentic assessment of sin. That by sin, at the first fall, with Adam and Eve, that when Adam and Eve first gave in to Satan in the garden and fell to sin, that Satan in that moment took authority over humanity, and henceforth the earth became Satan's dominion. And why is this important? Because then, therefore, if this is true, if this is true that from Adam and Eve on down, as humanity became enslaved to sin, that Satan took dominion over the earth, that the earth has now becomes become Satan's kingdom, in a sense. Jesus' mission in coming down to earth is to take back authority, dominion, and kingship over the earth from Satan. The spiritual battle between Jesus and the devil over authority over the earth. This is so incredibly important. And we'll see, we'll see this play out a little bit more. But Jesus, Jesus responds to this, this claim and to this temptation again perfectly. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And some, some kind of background context that uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12. So right before that, I'll just, I'll just read that. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with fine, large cities that you did not build, with houses full of goods of all sorts that you did not garner, with cisterns that you did not dig, with vineyards and olive groves, olive groves that you did not plant. And when, therefore, you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt." This is a perfect response from Jesus because what is Moses saying in Deuteronomy? That God will give us the glorious, the glorious promised land. That Satan is, is saying to Jesus, I'll give you all these glorious kingdoms for you to possess. Just, just for you. And Jesus responds that if we trust the Lord, then God will give us the promised land. Will give us the glory if we just, if we just trust him. Perfect response. And then temptation three, Satan pulls out all the stops and he quotes scripture. Satan quotes scripture. I think this is important for us uh, because the temptations that we still live in uh, often sometimes are masked and veiled. That Satan is deceptive. That Satan is a fallen angel of God. He certainly knows the scriptures and will will use things that seem like they're good things uh, in order to tempt us to bad, bad things. Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. Uh, and kind of trying to get Jesus to, uh, in some ways, assume his safety and that he should prove it. Uh, and to try to get Jesus 
to understand that maybe maybe God needs to be tested uh, and test his loyalty versus just simply trusting God. But Jesus responds and he stays in the pocket, goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That our God does not need to be tested. He should simply be trusted. Jesus overcomes these three temptations perfectly. And there's great significance to this. Because the first temptation, um, the first temptation we maybe would consider a temptation of the flesh. That Satan is promising him food, some kind of a sensible pleasure, a temptation of the flesh. The second temptation would be a temptation of the eyes, that he, he promises him something, something glorious to possess. This might be greed in some sense, to possess something for ourselves and take something for ourselves. And the third temptation would be of the mind, that he's essentially tempting Jesus to, to pride, that I know better than God, that I would put God to the test because I know better. Now, why are these three temptations significant? Because if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, in the fall, in the original fall, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, is this. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. What are those three things? Good for food, the temptation of the flesh, pleasing to the eyes, the temptation of the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom, the temptation of the mind to pride. This is what uh, the church calls the triple concupiscence, which is our concupiscence being a fancy word for kind of our temptation to sin. This is the triple concupiscence, which is the effect of the fall, the effect of what happened when humanity had that first sin, that first fall in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus, as we said yesterday, Jesus kind of coming in in his relationship to Adam all the way back down the line, Jesus coming as the new Adam, Jesus comes, faces those same temptations, those same three temptations from the devil and responds to them correctly and overcomes them and redeems them. This is God's perfect plan for salvation. That from all the way from the first fall, all the way to the time of Jesus, Jesus comes and redeems that original fall in the garden in this moment. That's why the Holy Spirit sends him into the desert, to redeem the original fall of Adam and Eve. That's incredible. (laughs) What an incredible story from our God. Um, And then it says, as Satan departed for an opportune time. Very interesting line, departed for an opportune time. That Satan's not done. He's not done with Jesus and he'll be back. And we'll see that we'll see that manifest itself later on in our story for sure. But we have spiritual warfare here. This is a real fight between Satan and Jesus for dominion over the earth, for authority, for kingship. And may we hope that Jesus wins and hopefully we come to find that to be true. If we know the story, we know. We know that that's true. So we come to uh, after Jesus' time in the desert, he begins his ministry. So we first find Jesus as the, the traveling preacher in Galilee. And I think kind of a kind of a distinction or a good good informative note, because I would always get confused by this of like, what is Galilee? Where is Galilee? What are all these like town names and things? So Galilee is kind of the region, the way that like Jerusalem and Samaria are like, are like regions. So Galilee is up in 
up north of Jerusalem and Samaria. And it has cities within it, like Nazareth and Cana and Capernaum, etc., are cities within Galilee. Uh, and in the middle of Galilee is the Sea of Galilee. It's super big, right in the middle of the region. So lots of the cities are kind of on the shore around the Sea of Galilee. So that's where a lot of Jesus' public ministry takes place, is in the region of Galilee. Um, just good to note. I would always get confused by that. Um, but it says that he taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. So there's initially this big positive response to Jesus. He's, he's the talk of the region. It says everyone's spreading the good news that Jesus is saying. Until he gets to his hometown of Nazareth. So we remember that Jesus was born in Nazareth. And who knows when he left, but he's back. The, the hometown boy has come home. And he gets to the synagogue and he gets up to read. And he reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads Isaiah chapter 61, which speaks of freedom and deliverance and announcing um, a year of favor or a, a jubilee year, which is like a release from all debts. So this is incredible good news that the prophet Isaiah was was speaking about that the Lord said uh, would come. And Jesus sits down and everyone's looking at him. Jesus has just read this, this great scroll and Jesus sits down and goes, yeah, I'm going to do that. And the crowd goes wild and everyone loves it and all spoke highly of him and were amazed. So Jesus is initially welcomed and, and he's admired and everyone's probably sitting there thinking he's going to do something serious here. And, and maybe, no, maybe no direct Messiah connection yet, but a prophet at least that something, something big is happening here. He quoted the prophet, said it was going to be fulfilled. So something serious is happening with Jesus. But I mean, Jesus grew up around here. So someone had to say it. And one, one person in the crowd, of course, goes, hey, it, isn't this that kid from down the street? Isn't that Joseph's kid? Of course. And Jesus, Jesus responds in an interesting way. But he anticipates, essentially, that they're going to ask for some kind of signs, for Jesus, Jesus to prove something. He says, you mu- you'll probably say to me, do hear what you did in Capernaum. Now, we may read this and find this a little bit tricky because... We, I don't, I don't know if you heard anything while we were reading previous, but we haven't heard anything about Jesus being in Capernaum yet. Um, and in fact, the next section that we'll read right after this is when it talks about Jesus in Capernaum. So this is, this, my friends, is our first example of Luke maybe being out of chronological order. If you remember like way back at the beginning in the very introduction of, of Luke talking about uh, being the story being an orderly account of events. And I said that that's maybe as a, a narrative story versus a chronological order of events. This is our first example probably of where we have Luke writing the story as a narrative versus like in chronological order. Uh, but there, there must be some storytelling reasons for this. And maybe, maybe we'll see that in a little bit. But Jesus then says, no prophet is accepted in his native place. So I think maybe two things. One, I respond to that. I, as I'm reading this, I'm like, wait, hasn't everyone been pretty much positive so, so far? Like just the one guy question just said, you, isn't that Joseph's kid? But otherwise, no one's, no one's been negative so far. Everyone was admiring. Everyone was positive. Okay, Jesus. But second, uh, Jesus identifies as a prophet right here by, by saying that. And we know from what we've read and, and, what, and Jesus clearly knows this, that he's, he's much more than a prophet. Um, but what he then does is references two Old Testament prophets. He references Elijah and Elisha. 
and gives two stories from the Old Testament. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of just <laughs> give a general outline of these two stories because this is already a long episode. But so Elijah he references Elijah and the widow at Zarephath, which is found in the first book of Kings. So first Kings chapter 17. Essentially, there is a famine or a drought in the land and Elijah is sent by God to Zarephath, which are, are they're non-Israelites there. And he's sent to stay with a widow. And for whatever reason, God chooses an, uh, through Elijah for her to be the one that Elijah spares with blessing and food in the midst of the drought. Interesting story, that that's the one in the midst of the drought. The second story that Jesus mentions is the prophet Elisha and Naaman, the Syrian. So this is from 2 Kings chapter 5. So essentially what happens here is Naaman is the commander of a foreign king, but he's got leprosy. And the king sends word to the king of Israel, the foreign king to the king of Israel, asking for Elisha, the prophet, to heal Naaman of his leprosy. Uh, and the king of Israel wants to say no because he, he thinks this foreign king is just like trying to start beef or something. Uh, but Elisha, nonetheless, receives the foreigner Naaman when he comes and heals him of his leprosy. Jesus quotes these two stories. And is essentially saying, so what Jesus is saying is that many Israelites experienced the drought, yet Elijah only went to the Gentile widow. And many were sick, yet Elisha only healed the Gentile leper. What is Jesus saying by quoting these two? I think one, he's comparing himself in some way to these great prophets of the Old Testament. And as we know that he is he's much greater than these two, but two that they'll recognize as the incredible great prophets of the Old Testament that he's comparing himself to. But second, that he has come not just for the Israelites, but for the Gentiles. That in some way, what Jesus is doing by reading the prophet Isaiah and by referencing these two stories is a statement of intentions of sorts for his ministry. That Jesus has come to bring freedom and deliverance especially to the poor, to the captive, the blind, the oppressed, but not just to the Israelites, but to the Gentiles too, to all nations. This is the intention of Jesus' mission. And he, he says this essentially. And how do the people react in Nazareth? It says, and this is wild to me, it says, they rose up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town had been built to hurl him down headlong. They try to throw him off a cliff for saying this. It's, it's almost hard to imagine how quickly this escalates. Um, it's pretty wild. The, their initial admiration, because it just said that they, were, they admired Jesus and he was so welcomed, turns so quickly to rejection and persecution. And I think here we find a little bit of the, the storytelling element of Luke's gospel. That why does this why does this why does he place this story where it is? Because in the other gospels like Matthew and Mark, uh, the rejection at Nazareth happens a little later in the storyline, probably where it chronologically makes sense. But Luke places it here, and I think in some way Luke is trying to foreshadow the pattern of Jesus's ministry. That what initially is is admiration and rejoicing turns far too quickly to rejection and persecution. And I think we'll, we'll see how that plays out as we continue to read the story. 
but so much here. I hope you got something out of that today. I got pages of notes. I love uh, I love these two sections here that we have, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Love having you here with me today. Can't wait to do this again tomorrow. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen.